We're so grateful uh, to have everybody here. Uh, you guys can open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, but while you're turning there, tonight we are continuing on with our summer series dealing with uh, forging friendships. Uh, we're talking about how true friendships can inform and transform our lives. And tonight in particular, we're going to see how true friendship has the power to deliver us from some of life's deepest sorrows. That is what we're going to see. We're going to see how true friendship has the power to transform us through the work of another person really in our lives. And you know, I was reminded of that principle the other day when I was reading a story about two very different men. Uh, one was named Reverend David Kennedy. The other was named Michael Burden. Maybe you've read their story. It's gained some recent attention over the last few weeks. But for those of you who haven't read that story, Reverend David Kennedy is an African-American man who grew up in the Deep South during a horrendous time of our nation's history with Jim Crow laws. He grew up in a particularly divided and hostile town, and he grew up in segregated housing. That was kind of his, his backstory. His great uncle was actually lynched in that town just a few decades earlier before he was born. And as he grew older in the mid-1990s, he was a pastor of a predominantly African-American church in this town, right when uh, tensions were kind of erupting in this town. And part of the conflict centered on a guy named Michael Burden. Burden was uh, a white man who grew up in a very broken and hateful family. Literally every relative he had was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. So naturally, when he was in his early 20s, he joined as well. Years later, when he'd be interviewed, he would say it was a desire for a place where he felt like he was known and belonged that caused him to join the clan because he never felt like anyone knew or loved him in his life. So he joined the KKK, and in 1996, Burden was the architect of a new tourist attraction in their small town in the Deep South. He opened up with some of the other clan members a shop called the Redneck Shop, and it was a deplorable place. It was a shop that sold all sorts of racist propaganda and memorabilia, and inside it had an unofficial museum to the KKK. Now, naturally, this was just an area that uh, was very hurtful and offensive to many of the people who lived in this town. So Reverend Kennedy started organizing some peaceful protests to push back against this racist shop that was in their area. Burden's superiors didn't like that. So they encouraged him to take care of Reverend Kennedy. And on more than one occasion with a gun in his hand, he had considered doing just that, but something always restrained him. Well, a few months later, Michael Burden met a, a girl and he fell in love and they got married and she hated the organization that he was a part of. So she begged and pleaded that he would leave. And finally, after a few months, he decided to leave the KKK. But when he did, he faced some pretty negative consequences. They were immediately evicted from their home because it was owned by a Klan member. He lost his job and source of income, and then no one in town would hire him or help them. He was essentially blacklisted. So after a couple of weeks, they're living in the bed of their truck. They have no money for food. They're starving, and they bump into Reverend Kennedy in the downtown park. 
And he walks up to Reverend Kennedy and he says, I know you have no reason to trust me, but I need to talk to you. He said, I'm, I'm hungry and I've got two young kids and my wife living in the bed of the truck. Can you help? Burden was requesting help from the very man that had been harassing him, directing pejorative language and just doing all sorts of hateful things towards him and his community over recent months. He had every right to hate Michael Burden and to say, no, why help a man like that? But Reverend Kennedy did the unthinkable. He told Burden that he would gladly take care of them and help them out. Immediately, he took him out for lunch at a buffet in the local area. He took him to a motel and paid for a week's rent. And then over the next few years, his church rallied around the Burden family, oftentimes paying for their electric bill when they didn't have enough money or taking up a love offering to help and support them. And he began what's turned into a 25-year friendship. And over the years, Burden has fully denounced the Klan and repented of his former life. He's a totally different man than he was 25 years ago. When asked in a recent interview what changed him, Burden replied, it was love and friendship. For his entire life, Burden was literally a burdened man. Like his, his last name reflected his character well. But through the undeserved love and friendship of others, he found the strength to release those burdens and become a better man. True friendship, biblical friendship, has the power to transform our lives in remarkable ways. Never underestimate the power of a friendship to transform a life. And tonight, as we open up the book of Ruth, we are going to look at scripture's most profound demonstration of that principle. The book of Ruth traces two unlikely friends, Ruth and Naomi. They're from different cultures. They're from different generations. There are all sorts of things that uh, divide them. But through this unlikely friendship, we see how they developed a, a kindred spirit through shared faith, family, and ultimately their, their friendship. And in their story, we see how Ruth's friendship with Naomi actually helped rescue Naomi from the burdens that she had been carrying. We see how Ruth's friendship with Naomi restored her to fullness and joyfulness after being bitter and barren. We discovered the power of having a true friend who walks with us through a time of adversity. Kind of brings us to our big idea to sum up what we're going to be talking about tonight. It's pretty simple. Here it is. Tough times reveal true friends. Tough times reveal true friends. And you know, that's an important topic for all of us to consider and to think about because we will all face tough times in our lives. In reality, there's probably many people here tonight that are walking through a tough time currently. Maybe you're walking through a trial of physical health. There's an unknown test result that's been hanging above your head over the last few days. There's a recent diagnosis or prognosis that is kind of terrifying. There's chronic pain that you've been living with that's just been unbearable in recent days. Maybe you're walking through a season of fear and anxiety. I mean, no surprise here, 2020 hasn't really been the easiest year on record, right? I think we can all admit that. It's been a little bit of a curveball. And for a lot of us, there might be a fear of the unknown. There's been so much change. There's been so much loss. There's been so much difficulty. We find ourselves floundering in the fear of the unknown. Maybe you're trudging through a time of grieving the loss of something you loved. 
Maybe recently you've had a family member or a friend that you loved that passed away, or maybe you saw the end of a relationship that was meaningful to you, or, or, or maybe you had to say goodbye to a job that you loved and you've been grieving that loss. Maybe you're just walking through a season of spiritual depression. God feels distant. The Christian life just feels a little joyless and you feel alone in that struggle. Life in a fallen and sin-cursed world is oftentimes augmented by trials. We will walk through seasons of trials and adversity, but our story reminds us tonight that we don't have to walk through those alone. The title of tonight's sermon is Sharing Our Sorrow. One of the greatest gifts of friendship is the reality that we don't have to face tough times alone. One of my favorite one another's in the New Testament is Galatians 6.2, which instructs us to carry one another's burdens. God designed Christ-centered friendship to be a lifeline for tough times. I once heard it this way, true friendship halves, divides our sorrow and doubles our joy. But tonight I want to focus in on the first part of that phrase. True friendship halves, it divides our sorrow. Specifically, I want us to think about how we can be a true friend to those who are going through a difficult time. As I was thinking about this topic, Philipp, or not Philippians, Proverbs 17, 17 kept coming to my mind, right? I mean, one of the most well-known verses in Proverbs. Solomon writes, a friend loves at all time, but a brother, a sister, a spiritual sibling is born for what? For a time of adversity, for a time of adversity, hard times. In hard times, we need a friend who's willing to share our sorrow. In bad times, we need the gift of true friendship. And in our passage tonight, Ruth gives us an amazing demonstration of what it looks like to be a true friend. So look at verse one with me. I, I'm gonna read a verse or two at a time and pause and then make comments. So it's gonna be a little choppy, but that's just how we're doing it tonight, okay? So let's start in verse one. Here's what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Let's pause there for a moment. Now, this verse gives us some vital background information that we need to understand the book of Ruth in its proper historical and cultural context. First, notice when this story takes place. When does it take place? during the time of the judges, right? Now, whenever you read this happened in the time of the judges, you immediately need to think of the refrain that encapsulated the mindset during the time of the judges. In judges, we learned that in that day, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of immorality, idolatry, and all sorts of sin and wickedness. It's not a great time to live. And that is exactly why there's a famine in the land. According to Deuteronomy 28, which was a little bit of the, the covenant agreement between God and the nation of Israel, God told them that if they obeyed him, they would receive blessing. If they disobeyed, they would receive the curses of the law. And guess what one of the curses was? Famine, right? So God was essentially saying, when there's famine, when there's pestilence, where there's bad things in your land, that's a spiritual check engine light that's flashing that you need to go in for a spiritual tune-up. You need to repent. But the nation of Israel didn't repent, so the famine continued. So things get really bad. 
So bad that a guy named Elimelech and his entire family move out of the promised land into the region of Moab. So look at verse two. That's where we'll continue on. It says this, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. Say that one five times fast. They went into the country of Moab and then they remained there. Now, this verse doesn't seem that surprising to us. I'm guessing if you were to read through the book of Ruth, you probably wouldn't even pause and give that verse any thought. But that's because we oftentimes read scripture through our 21st century American lenses. But if you had your 12th century BC lenses on, this verse would stick out to you because Elimelech and his family are doing something that you wouldn't expect to see. Here's a, a, an Israelite man from the tribe of Judah and he's taking his family away from the promised land, away from the area where people worship God, and he's moving them into the land of the enemy where the whole culture is pagan and immoral. And so he, he's making a bad move, right? And we even see that with the direction he moves. He moves to a place called Moab, which is east of Israel across the Jordan River. And in the Bible, this is really interesting. In the Old Testament, when people geographically move east, it's not, it's not a good thing. That's a literary device telling you they're making a bad decision. When Cain kills Abel and gets kicked out of the garden, which direction does he go? East, okay? When the people uh, after uh, the time of Noah and the ark go to build the Tower of Babel, which direction do they head to build the Tower of Babel? East, all right? When the people of Israel get exiled and go into punishment for many hundreds of years, where do they go? East to Babylon. When Lot departs from Abraham to go find a place for himself in Sodom and Gomorrah, which direction does he move? East. Whenever people move east, it's symbolic of moving away from God's presence. So Elimelech is essentially moving his family away from God's presence. So the original readers would have saw this and said, you know, it's kind of like modern day watching a cheesy horror movie where a group of young teenagers are walking to like an abandoned hospital or something. You're saying, why would you go in there? That's stupid. Of course, there's going to be something that pops out and tries to kill you. Like, don't go to the abandoned hospital. That's, that's foolish. The original readers would say, why are you going to Moab? Bad things are going to happen. And guess what happens in the next verse? Bad things. Okay, look at verses three through five. Here's what happens. Verses three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years, and then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi suffered terrible emotional pain in Moab. I mean, just imagine what that feels like. You move to a new land where you know no one. You're, you're away from your church family. You're away from an area where people worship the same God. But at least you have your family there to keep you company. And then her husband died. And I'm sure it probably felt like she didn't even have the strength to go on. I can't imagine how painful and difficult that would be. But just as she's bouncing back and, and feeling better, her son dies. And then her heart breaks. She probably falls into a depression. She wonders why tragedy seems to be attracted to her. And then lastly, her other son dies. And there's no other grandchildren. There's no other heirs. And she's left a widow and a mom who's had to bury both of her sons. But she doesn't just suffer emotionally. She also suffers financially. 
Later on in the book, we learn that they had to mortgage their land at some point, so they have no resources to fall back on. She has suffered all sorts of emotional, financial, every type of pain. Her decade in Moab has changed her. She entered into Moab as a pleasant and hopeful wife and mother. She's now leaving as a broken and bitter widow. And so she decides there's nothing left for her in Moab. It's time to go home. So she leaves with the only two things that she's gained in Moab, her two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And I'll read the rest of our passage, which is verses 6 through 18 as you follow along. It says this, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab, uh, that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband one day. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will not return with you to your, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. And even if I should uh, even have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Essentially, she's saying, if you follow me, I have nothing to offer. Like I, I cannot give you, I can't replace your husbands. I can't give you a family. You're gonna die old widows if you go with me. There's nothing I can do. Just forget about me. No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Ruth said, or and Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge your people They'll become my people and your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. In this section of the passage, we are introduced to a pretty amazing character. Her name is Ruth. And Ruth is one of Naomi's daughters-in-law, and she gives us an amazing picture of what it looks like to be a true friend to people who are going through a time of adversity. Naomi is going through a season of grief, loss, confusion, anger, and bitterness. In fact, when she returns to Bethlehem, she literally changes her name. Naomi, her name means pleasant. And when she goes back, she says, don't call me pleasant anymore call me Mara. It means bitter. She says, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She said, I am coming back a bitter and just defeated woman. Sadly, we don't have the time to work through the entire book of Ruth tonight. It's an incredible story and we'll have to pick back up at some point. But let me give you a quick recap of what happens to Naomi in this book. Over the next three chapters, Ruth proves to be a friend who sticks closer than a sister. During this time, Ruth offers Naomi constant companionship. She refuses to abandon her. She goes out every single day into the fields to glean enough food to make sure that Naomi is provided for and won't starve to death. 
And then she eventually marries the kinsman redeemer named Boaz and her and Boaz are able to have a son and he is able to free the land from the mortgage that be set against it. So now Naomi goes from being a widow with no heir to now being the matriarch of a family and having her family's lineage restored. All of that from Ruth's friendship. So much so that at the end of the book, the village people come to Naomi and say, that Ruth, she's more valuable to you than seven sons. Now that sounds like kind of a a weird thing for us to say, right? You probably wouldn't say that nowadays. But what that meant was that was kind of the ideal picture of, of a family back in that time. Seven was the number of completion. Sons was the idea of carrying on the name and having people to work the fields. They're saying Ruth's friendship is more valuable to you than the perfect family. She has been invaluable in your life. Tough times reveal true friends. And Ruth is the biblical archetype of what it means to be a true friend. That's even revealed in her name. Remember, a lot of the times in the Bible, names oftentimes reveal the character of somebody. Does anybody know what Ruth's name means? It's from the Hebrew root, a root, Actually, it's from the Hebrew root word, root, R-U apostrophe T, and that word means companion or friend. Her name literally means friend in the Bible. That that We don't know if that's her official name or if that was a name that they kind of gave to her because it reflected what she was. Her name literally means friend or companion, and she's a model of true friendship for us. So we're going to look at three quick ways that we can see to be a true friend through both thick and thin from this passage. Here's the first point. Point number one, true friends value vulnerability over pretense. True friends value vulnerability over pretense. When we talk about someone is being pretentious or there's pretense, that means I'm putting on a mask because I want everyone to think of me a certain way. I'm trying to control how I'm being viewed in that moment. Ruth and Naomi's friendship was built upon a foundation of vulnerability and trust. When tragedy struck, Naomi chose to be vulnerable and real with Ruth. There was no pretense or pretending in their friendship. There was no putting on a mask and trying to hide what was going on. She was vulnerable with Ruth. She said, I feel broken. I feel bitter. I feel uh, abandoned by God. She didn't sugarcoat it. She confessed, you know, it'd be better if you just left me. I have nothing left to offer. My life is over. This is just how I'm feeling right now. She laid her soul bare before Ruth. And because of that, because she was brave enough to do that and invite Ruth into the pain and the messiness of her heart, she was able to find someone to help her carry the burden when she felt overwhelmed. Because of Naomi's vulnerability, Ruth could enter into her pain and brokenness. She was invited into the recesses of Ruth's heart or Naomi's heart, allowing her to know that she wasn't alone and she wasn't abandoned. And when Ruth was vulnerable with Naomi as well, she wept with Naomi. She clung to Naomi. She said, no, after after 10 years of friendship, I love you and I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Where you die, I'll die. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. I'm not going to leave you behind in your hour of need. Now, if we're being honest here tonight, isn't that something we all long for? <laughs> when we're walking through tough times, through trials, through sorrow, through shame, don't we long to know that we're not alone? Don't we long for someone to lean on and support us? Don't we long for permission to be vulnerable, to admit I'm really hurting right now and everything is not good and I just need a friend. 
You know, I think that's something that's universally longed for and almost universally missing in our lives as well. There are a lot of us that have never cultivated anything but shallow friendships. We have a contact list filled with names that we can hit up to watch a Packers game or go golfing or do this or that, but they're only good time friends. When the trials, when the difficulties hit, who can we reach out to? How many friends can we reach out to when the storms of life feel overwhelming? A lot of people don't really have a friend like that. A lot of people feel like they uh, don't have a friend that they can be vulnerable with in the difficult times. Rather than feeling known and seen, there are a lot of times when people are going through difficult times and they feel alone and abandoned. And I know that can be profoundly painful. It's a terrible feeling to walk through a storm of sorrow in your life alone. And I address this particular area with a lot of compassion and empathy, because I know how painful that can be. Maybe some of you are out there tonight and everyone thinks that you're just the happiest person they've ever met. You're the life of the party, you're outgoing, you're liked. I mean, everyone just, everyone loves you. But on the inside, it's a different story. You have a burden that you're carrying that no one else ever seems to know about. And it takes everything you have to put on that mask and be the person that everyone thinks you are every time you show up. Maybe you're out there and you're carrying a burden of shame tonight. For years, you've convinced everyone that you've got this exceptional spiritual life going on, but you feel like what Jesus would call a whitewashed tomb, outwardly admirable, but inwardly dead. And you're too afraid to let anybody in and know about the sin struggle going on in your life. You're, you're too afraid to be vulnerable because what, what, what if what would another person think about me? I, I can't let them see what's going on in my heart. Maybe you're out there and you're really struggling in your marriage. Every day, it feels like you're gearing up for a war zone. You feel lost, you feel alone, you feel confused, but everyone thinks you have a really good marriage and a perfect marriage, and you're too afraid to reach out and say anything because what will everybody say? So you just kind of trudge through it alone. Maybe you're walking through a bout of spiritual depression, but no one else knows, and you convince yourself that you don't want to be a burden to anybody else, so you need to just buck up and, and walk through it by yourself. The reality is we're not naturals at being vulnerable. We're just not. And that's part of the fall. That's part of sin. Sin naturally tells us we need to be secluded. We need to hide. And we need to put on this pretense that says, I'm doing fine. Our default is pretense. That means that we try to portray to everybody, I've got it all together. I want to control my image. I want other people to view me as strong and successful and independent. But the root of that kind of behavior is ultimately what? Pride, right? It's ultimately pride. Pride is the enemy of vulnerability. It is. Pride destroys intimacy. Pride keeps us isolated by telling us it's better for us to be alone than to open up and share what's really going on in our lives. Pride fuels sorrow because it refuses to allow another person to help bear the burden we're carrying. Pride lies to us by telling us that vulnerability drives people away when in fact the right kind of vulnerability does the actual opposite. I was at a leadership conference a couple years ago, and one speaker was talking about something that he referred to as the, the Ben Franklin effect. I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but here's a little bit of research that kind of explains what this is. There were two researches in 1969 that had a bunch of students come together and do an intellectual contest where if they did well, they could win significant amounts of money. And then afterwards, they divided the winners into three different groups. Group A the researcher personally went to them and said, you know, 
could you actually give us the money back? Uh, I've been floating the bill for this with personal money, and I'm just going through a difficult time, and I don't really have the money to, to give that out. Would you be willing to give that back? That was group A. Group B, they had someone go and uh, some email sent, or not an email back then, but a phone call from the university go out, and, and they said, hey, the uh, department that did this research, we were running behind on our budget. Would you be willing to give the money back and help sponsor the school? That was group B. And then there's group C, no one contacted them. And then they went back a few months later, and they asked the group which group liked the researcher the most, okay? Which group do you think liked the researchers the least? The informal ask of the money, do donating it to the college. That's not hard to figure out. But here's what's surprising. The next group was the people that were never contacted. The people who liked the researchers the most were the people who the researcher came and said, you know, I used my personal money and I, I don't really have this. Would you be willing to give it back? There's something about coming in humility and vulnerability that endeared them. There's this statistic that we tend to like people when we help them. The more we help them, the more we are, the more likely it is that we actually like them and enjoy them. Vulnerability knits our hearts together. It doesn't drive us apart. But one of the lies of the enemy is no one's going to understand. You're going to be weird. You're going to be ostracized. You need to struggle not alone. That's one of the lies that we face every single day. So true friendship values vulnerability. True friendship overcomes the prideful tendency for self-sufficiency by realizing that we're created to thrive in community. And just imagine how different our lives would be if we really embraced that truth. Maybe that would be the turning of the tide in a particular sin struggle. There's been something that we've been wrestling with and no one else knows because we're too afraid and too ashamed. And by inviting another person in to know that uh, you're not alone in this battle and there's someone else that is willing to help and give accountability, that could turn the tide. Maybe it could transform shallow life groups into real community. So rather than getting together in life groups and you share, you know, really nice biblical platitudes and, you know, just the, the Bible answers and it's great. And when you share prayer requests, you know, your prayer request is, you know, it's just like, I only pray for half an hour a day. I really want to pray for an hour this week. Could you really pray for me for that? You know, and we just kind of give the Bible answers. Maybe, maybe it could be being vulnerable in a life group to where we really focus in on doing life together. When we're struggling, when we're going through difficult times, we rally around and support each other in true Christian community. Imagine how it, would be feel, how it would feel to know that there are friends that you can just take the mask off and open up about what's really going on in your life. Don't settle for shallow friendships that are only strong enough to endure good times. We need to cultivate more deep, meaningful friendships. And we need to set aside the pride and the pretense that holds us back and realize that true friendship is one of the greatest gifts God has given us. So that's our first point. True friendship values vulnerability over pretense. Here's our second point. True friends make their presence a priority. True friends make their presence a priority. When Ruth saw Naomi walking through a season of sorrow, she made her presence her top priority. Ruth literally traveled to a new country, a new culture, a new people, she embraced a whole new worldview to walk through this time of sorrow with Naomi. And Naomi even tried to convince Ruth to leave her. She said, leave me. There's nothing left. I'm old, miserable, and cranky. Like, I'm not fun to be around, Ruth. Go have a life. Like, get out of here. She tried everything she could to drive her away, but Ruth said, no. 
you're struggling, you're my friend, and I'm going to make my presence a priority. Ruth reminded me of a statue that I've seen at the Marine Base Camp Pendleton in California. There's this statue that came out about 10 years ago. It's called No Man Left Behind. And it shows three Marines, one on either side with a wounded Marine who's hobbling to safety after getting wounded in a conflict. And the idea is you don't retreat from the battlefield and leave a wounded friend on the battlefield. No man left behind. You bring them with you. True friendship has a no person left behind mentality. Think for a moment. When you see your friend walk through a season of sorrow and pain, are you good at making your presence a priority? You know, one of the greatest barriers in the 21st century to friendship is just the busyness that dominates our lives. Being present means that we have to actually take time out of our calendars to be present with people. I honestly think a lot of us have good intentions to be good friends, but intentions don't really mean anything. You know, we can aspire to be something, but it's action that gets us there. I think a lot of us have aspirations to be a good friend, but then we just get busy and we kind of forget. And you know, if we fail to make our presence a priority when our friends are going through good times, why would they ever think we're going to make our presence a priority when they're going through a season of difficult times? I think if we're being honest, a lot of us aren't as good of friends as we probably would like to confess that we are. How intentional are we right now with being present in our friends' lives? What's a sacrifice that we've made in this last week to be there for a friend who's hurting? Are there any friends right now in your life that are getting left behind in the busyness of your schedule? True friends make their presence a priority. Don't underestimate the power of just being present with someone who's going through a season of sorrow. A lot of the times when our friends are going through a struggle, they don't ultimately need a pithy platitude. (laughs) They don't ultimately need someone to come in and try to fix the situation for all you fixers out there like myself. They don't need a lecture. A lot of the times people just need to know that they are seen, that they're known, and that they're loved. Sometimes the best thing that we can offer is just our silent presence to be with them as they're going through a difficult time. I learned that lesson three years ago. I was the pastor on call one weekend when I was working at a church out in California, and I got a phone call that I needed to go to the hospital and meet with this couple because uh, the gentleman was struggling with some, some heart pains. By the time I got to the hospital, he was back, and about the same time I walked in, they called a code, and uh, he crashed. So his wife was back there. Um, they'd only been married for about a year at this time, and uh, she was back there and she just didn't know what to do. So they came and got me and said, would you come back and be with her? So I went back into the emergency department. And as we're standing there, I was just with this lady over the next hour as uh, he continued to get a pulse back and crash, get a pulse back and crash until he ultimately died. I had never been with someone in a situation like that before. And I had no idea what to do. There was no pithy platitudes coming to my mind. There just wasn't. I felt ill-equipped. I didn't know what words to share. All I could do was be present and put my arm around her. And she asked questions. I I didn't have always a response. I was just there. And over the next weekend, as we planned the memorial service, as we went through, I I was just there. I was just someone that was there to walk through it with her as best I could offering my presence. I I did nothing. I can tell you that. I, I literally did nothing. I, in that time, I just kept praying to God, don't, help me not to say the wrong thing. I have no idea what I'm doing in this moment. Help me just to be present. 
But to this day, we still email back and forth every couple of months. And to this day, she raves to people about the rock I was for her in that moment. I did nothing. I was present. Sometimes we're afraid to be present for friends that are going through difficult times because we think, I don't, I'm not a counselor. I don't know how to do that. I, I, doesn't matter. A lot of the times, all people need is our presence. Point two, we have to make sure that we make our presence a priority. What friends need your presence this week? Who needs a letter that you can write letting them know that they're seen and known? Who needs you to have them over to their house just to sit and listen? Who are the people right now that are being left behind that you need to reach out to? Who are the people that haven't been able to leave their homes over the last few months because of COVID and they would love a phone call, but the only phone call they receive is maybe from their kids? Who are the friends that are getting left behind? Here's our third, our third and final point. True friends choose commitment over convenience. True friends choose commitment over convenience. Ruth was committed in her friendship to Naomi. She was determined to be a faithful friend. And one of the ways that we see that is this really cool word that Naomi says to Ruth. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. That word kindly is a word that you've probably heard translated other ways before. It's the Hebrew word hased. How many of you have heard that maybe before? Hesed, right? Hesed is this idea mostly ascribed to the Lord in the Old Testament of a loyal covenant love for somebody. And when Naomi looks at Ruth, she says, you have had hesed for me. You have had a loyal covenant love for me. Your friendship has been a commitment, not just a time uh, to hang out when it was convenient. It's what Paul writes in Philippians 2, that we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, we count other people as more significant than ourselves. True friendship is motivated by desire for what's best for the other person. True friendship focuses on giving over gaining. And that's why the ultimate example of true friendship is who? Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that next month, so I won't dive into that fully tonight. But the idea is Jesus is the greatest friend. He's the person who most counted our needs more significant than his own. He's the person who always focused on giving over gaining. And we consider the example that Jesus gave us of what true friendship and commitment looks like. It gives us a paradigm that we're ultimately falling short in a lot of ways. Because, I mean, just think of what Jesus did for you as your friend. And scripture tells us, Jesus calls, calls the disciples his friend. And what does he say the greatest privilege for true friendship is? Lay down one's life for your friends. Jesus died for us. Commitment over convenience. And Jesus gives himself and points to himself. He says, yeah, that's kind of the model of how I want you to be a friend to other people. That's a high calling. And reality is a lot of us don't really treat friendship like that. A lot of us aren't really as faithful as a friend as Jesus is. A lot of us unknowingly have embraced what our culture tells us friendship is. And we, we kind of run friendship through this cost benefit analysis grid, right? We, we live in a culture that tells us it's all about the cost benefit analysis for all you business people out there. We live in a culture that tells us to value networking over real relationships. 
We're constantly supposed to think with the time and the input I'm putting into this relationship, am I getting proper output in the things that I want? And if not, well, I should use my resources elsewhere. This friend isn't really living up to the cost-benefit analysis. We're taught to be convenient friends rather than committed friends. We're taught to invest in friendships as long as it's convenient, low maintenance, and meets my expectations. Ultimately, we're taught to be selfish. (laughs) And selfishness is one of the biggest barriers to friendship. We want other people to be the friend that we're never willing to be ourselves. We focus more on what we want to gain out of a friendship than what we want to give. Now, here's the reality. Naomi had very little to offer Ruth. If you charted their friendship on the cost-benefit analysis grid, I can tell you this, there was no benefit for Ruth in that moment. (laughs) Naomi was broken. She was bitter. She was going through a difficult time. She wasn't gaining a lot out of that friendship in that moment. But it didn't matter because Ruth loved Naomi. She viewed her as her friend and her spiritual sister. Ruth understood that it's more blessed to give than receive. And Ruth understood that being a good time friend isn't being a friend at all. That's just being a user. True friendship is deeper than just having fun together. Friendship is a commitment to serve and love each other and reflect the love of Jesus into each other's lives. We'll never know the joys of true friendship, true Christian friendship, if we view other people through the cost-benefit analysis grid. We will never experience the community we're supposed to in Christ if we focus more on what we gain than what we give. We'll never find a friend that halves our sorrows and doubles our joy if we throw in the towel every time a friendship gets a little tough or costly or demanding. So in summary, tough times reveals true friends. True friends value vulnerability over pretense. True friends make their presence a priority and true friends choose commitment over convenience. Now, as I close out and the band can start making their way up here in a second, I I just wanted to close by reading the lyrics to a famous song written by Bill Withers, who died earlier this year. Bill grew up in a close-knit coal mining community in West Virginia, where everybody shared everything. He kind of came from that background. And then he wanted to be a musician. He moved to L.A., the city of friendship and love. (laughs) No, not anywhere close. I live close to L.A. It's the city of cynicism and meanness like that's it's not friendship and love so he was feeling a little bit alone out there and one night he was just messing around on the piano and he wrote these now very famous words that i think really capture really well what biblical friendship is he says sometimes in our lives we all have pain we all have sorrow but if we are wise we know that there's always tomorrow lean on me when you're not strong and i'll be your friend i'll help you carry on for it won't be long until I'm going to need somebody to lean on. So please swallow your pride. If I, have one, if I have things you need to borrow, for no one can fill those of your needs that you won't let show. You just call on me, brother, when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. I might just have a problem that you'll understand. We all need somebody to lean on. If there's a load that you have to bear that you can't carry, I'm right up the road and I'll share the load. Like, Boom, that's, that, that's essentially what true biblical friendship is talking about. You don't have to carry the burden alone. We need that true biblical friendship. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the example that we have in Ruth, but we're most grateful for the example that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, Jesus is our ultimate and greatest friend. He demonstrates to us what it looks like to choose commitment over convenience. 
And Father, it means the world to know that you loved us so much that while we were still in our sins, Jesus Christ came and died for us and he calls us his friend. And Father, if there's anybody here tonight that has never experienced friendship with Christ, I pray tonight's the night they experience that joy for the very first time. And for those of us who do have a relationship with Jesus, allow us to feel that burden to be a true friend to other people. We are in a culture where people are alone. They are broken. They are longing to be known, to be loved, and to be supported. And Father, one of the greatest testimonies to the gospel that we can do is to live that out and be the friend that you've called us to be. We thank you for this time. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.